Now we continue this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians and we'll momentarily be turning back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But first, uh, there are two passages from the book of Exodus that I would like us to read together. And so first, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, and we will read verses 1 through 28. You know, I I maybe will make a brief comment before uh, we pray in a moment and and read these passages. Uh, We're we're going to be reading two passages out of Exodus that in terms of the verse count will be far more than what we will read when we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But pay careful attention to what we read out of the book of Exodus. It forms the context and the backdrop of what Paul is teaching us in the verses that we will come to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it holds tremendous blessing for us this morning as we think about the way in which our Savior fulfills all of the shadows, all of the pictures, all of the types, all of the figures of the Old Testament. And so we'll begin in Exodus chapter 12, uh, reading verses 1 through 28. But before we do so, uh, please pray with me once more. Gracious Father, as we come to your word, we rejoice in the truth of your word. Lord God, in a world where we are lied to, on a perpetual and continual basis where the malice of men who lust over greed and power and control spin lie after lie. Lord God, we can come to your word and rest in its truth. For the Bible is the mouth of of God to us. Lord, you have filled your prophets with your spirit that we might have that refined word purified seven times over that we might know you and know your will for us, Father, and rest in the Savior you have provided. And so may our hearts do that this morning, Lord God. May we rejoice that there is truth to be found in this darkened world when we turn to the Holy Scriptures to sit at the feet of Christ and to learn from the mouth of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, 
On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt, Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians 
And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. And to emphasize a point that will be important when we turn to 1 Corinthians 5, one more passage now from Exodus chapter 13, just one chapter later, beginning in verse 3. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month Abib, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt." It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And uh, now, brothers and sisters, please turn to the New Testament and to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, page 1,121 of the Pew Bible. And now with those many verses of Exodus that we have read together, let's read now three verses from the book of First Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Israel celebrated the Passover in the Old Covenant to remember the Exodus. And specifically, the Passover feast was designed to remember one particular plague that the Lord brought against Egypt. The culminating plague, the tenth and final plague, the plague of the firstborn. There had been nine previous plagues, of course, and Pharaoh had continually hardened his heart and refused to let God's people go, according to the Lord's command through Moses and Aaron. And so the Lord brought a final and a tenth plague. And there's something crucially different about this tenth plague over against the previous nine. Think about the previous nine plagues. We won't go through them all. We don't have time to do that. Uh, But remember Israel's participation, if you will, in those first nine plagues. Did they have to do anything? Were they involved at all in any of those nine plagues? They were not. They were simply, we might say, spectators. They were passively immune to the effects of those plagues. They were simply there in Egypt, and the Lord brought each one of those first nine plagues against the land of Egypt. In fact, in the plague of the livestock, it specifically says that it was only the livestock of the Egyptians that was killed and not the livestock of the Israelites. They were immune, as it were, from the effects of those first nine plagues. But with the tenth plague, this dynamic changes, and it changes dramatically. Now, why is this the case? Well, it's the first plague that has involved the death of human beings, the death of image bearers, the death of sinners in rebellion against God. It's the first plague where we are specifically told that God is coming in judgment not just to perform wonders, but to exact punishment for sin and idolatry against human beings. Rebellious image bearers who are shaking their fist against their God and their creator. And the soul who sins shall die. As God comes in judgment against sin and idolatry, Israel is no longer safe in the same way. Because every Israelite deserved this punishment for sin just as much as every Egyptian. The Israelite firstborn was every bit as deserving of death as the Egyptian firstborn. When we look at their guilt, the guilt and stain of sin, which is common to all mankind. Yes, God was making a distinction between the Egyptians and his people, but where there was no distinction between them was their guilt, their culpability for having transgressed the law of God and brought upon themselves the the wages of sin, which is death. 
This is what Paul goes to such great lengths to show us in Romans chapter 3, that if we listen carefully to the law, what is the testimony of the law? That all are guilty. That the whole world must clap its hand over its mouth and stand silent in its guilt before the law of God. That both Jew and Gentile have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So with all of this being the case, then how is it that Israel can therefore be spared in this tenth final culminating plague? And that's where the Passover feast comes in. God ordained that there should be a substitute for his people. That there would occur a death in the place of the firstborn in each of the families of his people, Israel. A substitute. And that substitute is the lamb. And there in Exodus chapter 12, God's people are are given very exacting instructions as to how to choose that lamb and how to set it apart. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. They are to kill that lamb at twilight and they are to take a, a bunch of hyssop as something like a brush and dip it in the basin where the blood is held and place it on the doorposts and on the lintel of their house. And God says, when I come against the land of Egypt to kill each firstborn, when I see that blood on your doorposts and on your lintel, I will pass over and the destroyer will not visit your house. And remember what we read at the end of our passage from Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites bowed their heads and worshipped, and they did as they were told. They sacrificed the lamb according to the manner prescribed by the Lord through Moses. And the Lord spared his people in that dreadful final plague, which was ultimately the plague of God himself coming in judgment against sin and against idolatry, a sin and an idolatry that had infected all the earth and that without a substitute, all are guilty and deserving of the penalty of death. And it was such a significant event in the life of God's ancient people that they were commanded to observe a feast to commemorate that event and what it meant throughout all of their generations which we now know as the Passover feast and the feast of the unleavened bread, which we'll talk about a little more later. Now with that looming so largely over the life of God's ancient people in the Old Testament, what do we find when we turn over the pages of our Bible and we come to read about the life of Jesus in the New Testament? Well, we find something extraordinary. And time fails to walk through the multitude of ways in which this is expressed. But we'll think about a couple ways that we see it at work. Jesus is baptized. His public ministry has begun. 
what is the first public declaration made by a human being, I should say, because, of course, God the Father says at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What is the first public declaration made by a human being concerning the identity of Jesus? It's John the Baptist, right? Who stands up and says, behold. The first thing publicly announced concerning the Christ by the chosen forerunner is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that declaration stands right at the very headwaters of Jesus' work as he enters into his public ministry to do the work he was sent to do by his Father. Now we could... Maybe let's jump over everything now and go right to the last book of the New Testament. We had it in our call to worship this morning. When we go to the book of Revelation, which, by the way, if you're interested in what would be a wonderfully fruitful study, look at the names of Christ in the book of Revelation. The multiplicity of names that the Apostle John gives to us to meditate on and to grow in our knowledge of and our love for our Savior. Do you know which name given to Christ occurs most frequently in the last book of the canon, the last book of the New Testament? We heard it, I think it's four or five times actually, in the the one chapter we read alone, Revelation chapter 5. It's the name of Lamb. The name of Lamb. No less than 27, 28 times in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, delights to meditate on Jesus as the Lamb of God. So you have the declaration of the Baptist, you have the visions of the Apostle John, and of course there's everything in between. And the testimony throughout the New Testament that everything the Passover lamb was meant to signify. Everything that it was given to prophesy concerning to God's ancient people is fulfilled in Christ, who is our Passover lamb, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the lamb chosen and set apart, not by men, but by God himself, to be the one sacrifice able to wash the elect of all of their sins. And it's a theme that runs, you know, if you, if you think of one theme that you can trace throughout the whole of the scriptures, this is one of them. And of course, time fails for us to do that, but think of Mount Moriah as one example. Genesis chapter 22 that profound and poignant moment where Abraham has been commanded to bring his son Isaac and to sacrifice him to the Lord. And they're ascending Mount Moriah and something dawns on Isaac. He says, Father, I see the wood and I see the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And of course, Abraham responds with 
this statement that will echo and reverberate throughout the whole of the scriptures, my son, God himself, will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. So you add to that the Passover lamb from the Exodus. And you arrive at the opening pages of the gospel accounts and you hear John the Baptist crying out before the world, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God's word is announcing to us in no uncertain terms, again, that everything foretold about that one sacrifice that God would bring, that would deal with sin once and for all and forever. It has come, and it has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8. For God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Abraham's testimony, God himself will provide the lamb, and he has in the sending of the only begotten, the true substitute, the lamb that saves us, not just from a temporal death, not just from the destruction of the body, but from the destruction of body and soul as the wages of sin in eternal death. The one true substitute capable of cleansing us of sin fully and eternally, that we might be reconciled to God as our heavenly Father. And it's in meditation on all of this, of course, that Peter cries out to us. We've been studying First Peter in the adult Sunday school class. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And Peter is, of course, thinking right back to the Passover lamb. What was the command? What, did this, what requirements did this lamb need to fulfill? It needed to be a lamb without blemish. And again, time fails, but we talked about the declaration at Jesus' baptism. When you go to the crucifixion accounts, and if you look carefully, something extraordinary inevitably and powerfully rises up out of the texture of those accounts as you read all four Gospels and see this consistent emphasis again and again. Pilate, I find no fault in him. Pilate's wife, have nothing to do with this righteous man. The centurion who is there at the crucifixion, certainly this was a righteous man. The thief who hung next to Jesus on the cross, this man has done nothing wrong. Even Judas, in his repentant less grief, testifies, I have betrayed innocent blood. And on his way to the cross, our Lord himself, speaking to the crowds, which one of you convicts me 
of sin. This vast chorus of wildly different individuals all testifying to one thing. This is the Lamb of God without spot, without blemish. This is the righteous one. This is the righteous one. Now, what must be done in response to all of this? What must we do as we survey all of these beautiful facts of biblical history and how God has been preparing the world for the giving of his only begotten son from the very beginning? What must we do? Well, remember the blood of the Passover lamb. Was it enough that they simply kill the Passover lamb and then maybe, you know, just eat what they can and leave the rest? It was not enough. Something, there, there was a response that was required of the people. The hyssop had to be dipped in the blood and the blood as it were, had to be appropriated. It had to be taken and it had to be put on the doorposts and on the lintel. And when the Lord says in Exodus chapter 12, he will pass over, it's when he sees the blood applied to the doorposts and to the lintel. It was not enough simply to observe, okay, that lamb has been slain. The people were called then to appropriate its benefits, to lay hold of it and to place it on the doorpost. And so, brothers and sisters, so it is for us. We can observe the death of Christ. We can read about the benefits of his death in Scripture, but if we do not appropriate it, if we do not make it our own, it will be of no use to us for salvation. And so Jesus, in preaching the gospel, says this is the work of God, to believe on the one whom he has sent. Do not simply observe the death of Christ as a spectator, but as it were, take your bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood of the basin, and paint it on the doorposts and the lintel of your house. And again, the, the way that translates into the call of the New Testament upon all the nations of the earth, it is to repent and believe the gospel, to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as died for you. Not just as a death abstractly, but as a death for you, that you may be saved from sin and death and hell. And so, believe in him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the beauty of the spotless Lamb of God, sinless and righteous in every way, that he might be the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Now, I want to do two things in relation to all of this. First, I want to unsettle you if your soul is settled and at peace when it should be unsettled, you will stand before God. And standing before God, you will give an account to him of your life. And the law 
of God requires perfection that we may be justified in his presence and that we may be inheritors of eternal life. And standing naked before him with our own sin and with the filthy rags of our own righteousness, none will stand. O Lord, if you should mark iniquity, Psalm 130, who could stand? Answer being no one. No one. You cannot yourself offer a sufficient sacrifice to cover your sin. And all sin must be punished. And God, in his infinite wisdom, has said that it must be punished after one of two ways, either in yourself for eternity or in Christ as a substitute given for the people of God on the cross. And so if you are settled being alienated from God, not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, think of that coming day, your inability to stand before him and flee to the Lord Jesus. Embrace him as the gift of God that you may not suffer the punishment for your sin in yourself, but trusting in him, you can know that he has suffered it on your behalf. Second thing I want to do is now to settle you if you are unsettled and not at peace when, you, when your soul ought to be settled and resting in the Lord Jesus. Have, have you done this? Have you trusted in him? However weakly, have you laid hold of him? And are you clinging to him now? Again, however weakly it may be, however feebly your grasp may be, are you holding on to him? Are you confessing with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. If that be the case, then when Satan comes to you, when the accuser comes to you and throws your sins in your face and says, how dare you think that you are worthy of salvation and eternal life? Look at your sins and your failures and your weaknesses. How could God possibly accept you? You point to the doorposts and you point to the lintel and you say, it's because of the blood. A death has occurred. I know, I I know perfectly well I am deserving of every bit of damnation that you are throwing into my face. But a death has occurred in my place. And it is the death of no mere lamb, but it is the death of the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. It is the death of God's only begotten Son. And he is beautiful, and he is righteous, and God has given him for my salvation. And you rest in him. And Satan will have no power in that place when your eyes are not fixed on... Satan will forever try to take the eyes of your faith off of Christ and put it onto your own merits. Now we're going to talk about our sanctity and our holiness in a moment. But when Satan comes accusing you on account of your sins... You go to the cross and you say, a death has occurred and I am hiding in the refuge of the shadow of his wings. Now, brothers and sisters, all of that now brings us 
to consider briefly 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Remember the context of all of this. It's the necessity of church discipline, the dread reality of excommunication. And Paul wants us to tremble before the reality of these things. But he does not want us to despair. So last week we, we thought about, if you remember the points, the what of excommunication in verses 1 through 5 and the who of excommunication in verses 9 through 13. And as we look at verses 6 through 8 now, Have you trembled before, again, the dread reality of the necessity of excommunication in the life of one who has professed Christ, but by their manner of life, by their lack of repentance, has shown that they want no part in him? They have not put on Christ. They have not ever truly taken up the cross to deny themselves and follow him. If you tremble before that, Verses 6 through 8 are given to us as a refuge and a sanctuary. According to everything we've talked about this morning, Christ is our Passover lamb. We do not maintain membership in the church of Jesus Christ on the basis of our own perfection. We look to his perfection in our reconciliation with God, our justification before his face. We look to him and not to ourselves. But just as verses 6 through 8 are a refuge and a sanctuary, so too they are a call to action. These verses are a call to personal holiness. And that brings to us now this whole business of the leaven. Uh, Did you notice that from the passages we read from Exodus 12 and 13? You know, if Moses said it once, he said it about 12 times to us that in the feast of the Passover, which is the feast of, the, of unleavened bread, you are to eat nothing leavened. Neither shall there be any leaven in your house whatsoever. The Israelites were commanded actually to sweep the house, to search out every speck of leaven and to remove it from the household. Also, something we can forget sometimes is that Passover wasn't just a one-day feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread took place over a period of seven days. Now, the meal of the Passover was celebrated the first night when the lamb was killed and roasted over the fire and consumed. That happened the first day, but that wasn't the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There were were then six subsequent days following the Passover meal where the feast was celebrated. And it was celebrated in this very unique, particular way that Moses hammers into uh, the people of Israel's head again and again. You shall eat nothing leavened. You shall eat nothing leavened, neither shall there be any leaven in your home whatsoever. Now, why? Well, most simply, we have the reason given to us in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Why didn't they leaven any bread 
on the night of their exodus, there wasn't time for any leaven to be added. They simply had to get the dough, forget the leaven, and hit the road. And so that was the reason that they celebrated this feast without any leaven. Now what does Paul teach us about the spiritual significance of what that leaven represented now as we celebrate the fulfillment of the Passover in the work of Christ? The lamb represented our Savior. The leaven represents to us what? The pervasive and corrupting influence of sin. And that's why it comes up here in the context of excommunication. Paul's looking at the church in Corinth. He's seeing the man that has the father's wife. He's seeing that they are not mourning over this. Instead, they are boasting over it. And he says, this is not good. You're supposed to be celebrating the feast and, and you are swimming in leaven. You are delighting in it. You know, you're throwing it up in the air practically and dancing it. These things should not be. You can think of what Jesus says, warning his disciples about what? The leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, the leaven represents sin, but sin in this very particular way. Its ability to infect and to spread and to corrupt. And then Paul says something absolutely amazing. He says, let us keep the feast. And he's talking there about the feast of unleavened bread. But he is not, of course, saying that we need to keep the feast according to all of the Mosaic prescriptions. But he's telling us that the whole of the Christian life now, in a very real sense, in fact, the whole of the New Covenant age itself ought to be, for the church, a keeping of the feast of unleavened bread. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Remember the pattern. One day the lamb is killed. Six days, no leaven. So too it is for the new covenant church of God. Our Passover lamb has been slain as a substitute in our place. And now Paul is calling the church in every generation. That event has happened once. It is unrepeatable and it is once for all. And so what is left for us to do now? God himself has offered the sacrifice of his lamb. It falls to us now to search out our houses and to be ruthless and uncompromising and merciless in the the finding of every bit of leaven. Uh, One amazing thing about these verses is, yes, they are in the context of church discipline and excommunication, but it is a call to action for the whole church regardless of her particular struggles with these matters. And it's a call to every individual Christian. Are you keeping the feast? Your Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And are you now diligent? Do you tremble before the prospect of excommunication? Well then, brothers and sisters, go into your houses, as it were. Get down on hand and knee, as it were and remove the old leaven of malice and wickedness and keep the feast. Notice verse 7. How do we know that these things are being applied in a spiritual manner? 
Paul says there, not that the bread is unleavened, you. You see what he says about the church? You are unleavened. Your Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He has cleansed you from all sin. And now you, united to Jesus Christ, are unleavened. So act like it. And live like it. He says, why, why are you throwing up the old leaven in the air and dancing in it? You should be grieving and mourning and searching. In light of everything that Christ has done, in light of a sacrifice already given, brothers and sisters, let us keep the feast. It's exactly what Paul will come to say a chapter later. He, he gives this great list of everything that the people in Corinth used to be. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so let us celebrate the feast and not return to the old leaven and malice of malice and wickedness, but to delight in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And note well that it's not the unleavened bread of sinless perfection, right? We will not be freed utterly of these sinful natures until we are glorified in heaven until we are the righteous souls made perfect, as the book of Hebrews describes those who have gone to be with the Lord. It is not the unleavened bread of sinless perfection, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity to lay our hearts bare before the Lord in continual repentance. Sincerity and truth to lay our hearts bare and to say, Lord, my greatest Grief in this life is the sin that I have tolerated, the sin that yet remains in my heart. May your spirit, day by day, more and more conform me to the image of your Son. And give me strength, Father, to seek out the old leaven, to repent of it, and to see it destroyed before the presence of the Lamb who was slain. And so I charge you, brothers and sisters, Keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, with your eyes fixed on the beauty and the righteousness, the loveliness and the majesty of your Savior, the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have a great task laid before us as the church of Jesus Christ. What joy we are called to keep the feast in all that it was meant to represent and to portray in the eternal realities of the kingdom of God that Jesus has brought to us. Father, let us rejoice in our Savior and hide in him and cling to him, and in reliance on his grace and on the spirit that he pours out, let us keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth.
And may he receive all glory and honor and praise. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We pray this in his name. Amen.